device, you want to turn it on and get it ready. No surfing the internet during the message. Um, but uh, turn it on and open it up to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and I want to just grab um, a short story, be probably familiar to most of you, about Jesus crossing the lake, the Sea of Galilee, the, the large lake of Galilee, with the disciples. And that's uh, verse 35 through 41. I'm just going to read it. You can follow along. Um, I also want to mention that uh, the outline of my my uh, teaching week by week or preaching, whichever it happens to be, is available free. Just let me know and I can text it to you or send it to you in an email. All right, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. By the way, number 14 in the series on the blood covenant. Hallelujah. So we're not done with the blood covenant. Hank has been on me about this and says, you've got to get more. And so I go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything else that could be possibly said? about the blood covenant. And so he just keeps squeezing a little more out. And um, here we go. Praise the Lord. Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. <clears throat> and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Whew. Glory to God. Haven't said anything yet already. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'll tell you, that word just preaches itself. Who then is this? Who is this? that the winds and the seas <coughs> obey him. Disciples had been with him some time, and they still didn't know who is this. Jesus orders his disciples to accompany him across the Sea of Galilee, and when a storm arises shortly into the journey to challenge their trip, he shuts it down with three brief words, peace, be still. But his disciples are in shock, and they say among themselves, Who then is this that even the sea and the wind obey him? Now the answer to that question that the disciples asked, Who then is this, reveals one of the greatest reasons that God sent the blood covenant to us. And that reason is simply to restore Man's position in God's chain of command upon the earth. Now, everything we have said in the past 13 segments on the blood covenant has to do with building up to a number of conclusions, and this is one of them. Now, one of the main things, one of the main features of the fall of man that was lost to mankind 
was his position in God's chain of command. In fact, Adam and Eve, when they were created and put upon the earth, they were set not under the angels, but directly under the Father. He came, Jesus, and walked with them day by day and talked with them in fellowship. They were directly next in line under the Lord's command. And the Lord said, the earth is for you to rule and subdue this garden and multiply it. And of course, that authority, that position of command was lost when they turned themselves over to the devil and allowed him to inject them with a, a word of doubt and unbelief about God. And they lost that position. So God used the blood covenant to restore that, to bring it. So the answer to the question, the simple short answer, about who is this, why, this is Jesus, the one in charge. I mean, does, does anything, and, and whether he's out in the middle of the Lake of Galilee or whether he is walking through Capernaum, casting out devils, commanding the dead to rise, is that not the answer to the question, who is this? This is Jesus in charge. This is Jesus, finally, someone in charge. There's a very specific reason why the religious community was threatened by Jesus. Because he was in charge. And he didn't walk around saying, I'm in charge I want everybody now to be subdued to me. You must acknowledge who I am. He simply was there walking and exercising authority. He didn't have to try. It just flowed from him. It was evident. And whenever the devil injected himself, came at Jesus, or people that Satan had a grip on came near Jesus, he proved he was Jesus who was in charge because he would just tell the devil just to go. Three words and the wind dies. And the disciples again and again are stunned. They still can't put it together. But the answer is, this is Jesus, that Savior that the blood covenant produced. That third party. We saw the vision of God the fire. And Jesus represented as the furnace with fire and smoke coming out of it. Passing through those pieces cutting that blood covenant, the Father and the Son, hallelujah, as Abraham watches and God brings Abraham into the blood covenant, up on Mount Moriah, bring your son, offer him to me. Just before he does, God stops him and says, I've provided myself a lamb. Your boy will never do, but I have a, I have a son. I'm going to give you a son to offer up as a lamb of God, hallelujah. What was he after? Just forgiving our sins? Because God can't stand messes. He can't stand imperfections. The Lord is holy. And I assure you that, um, that uh, wherever he is, things are in order. So God is not a God of disorder messes. But Jesus wasn't offered up just because God didn't like the disorder that sin brought into our life. There was a much higher objective. There was a strategic objective. And that objective was to put back into place and to move forward God's original plan to put you in charge in this life. Can you say amen? amen? Hallelujah. So who is this? This is the one that the blood covenant produced. He's bringing God and man 
into oneness. In fact, that's what he is himself. He is God and man. The God-man, the theologians call him. He is God and man brought together, not half God, not half man. He is all God and all man, human nature and divine nature brought together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why at his name, every knee bows. And yet at his name, people Find a friend, find a companion, find a link, find a connection, find a human connection, but it connects them to the living God. Jesus was the template of the new creation. Hallelujah. The firstborn of many brethren. Can you say amen? He is, glory to God, the product of the blood covenant. He is the one who's putting truth back in charge over the lies of the devil. Hallelujah. And I'll tell you something else. He is the one who is reproducing himself through many sons and daughters who are going to go and do the same thing. They will put truth in charge over the lies of the devil. So who is this Jesus, the truth in charge? Everyone say, this is Jesus, the truth in charge. So Jesus is God putting the truth back in charge. Let me say something to you that the Lord spoke to me in a prayer time I was having a few weeks ago. And I wrote it down. It was just so profound. It was so simple, but sometimes it's those simple things that the Lord speaks to us that just, you stop for a moment, you think, wait a minute, what? And it just hits you. And this was one of those for me. I hope it will be for you too. Here it is. You never know the truth about a situation until you hear about it from Jesus. Let me say it again. I'm going to try English this time. You never know the truth about a situation until you hear about it from Jesus. You see, truth is not a perspective. Truth is a person. God did not introduce himself as, I am developing. He introduced himself as I am. Not I'm improving, I'm developing, I'm underway, I'll get there. I am. So truth is, it's not in a state of development. It's not unfolding. It's not reaching to attain something. There's not going to be a conclusion as yet that does not exist. The Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. God worked backwards from the end. He made us in the image of the crucified Savior. That's a whole other mind-blowing thought. Glory to God. That, that uh, your cure preceded your disease. Your deliverance preceded your bondage. You were not made in the image of Adam. Adam was made in the image of Jesus crucified at Calvary and risen from the dead so that God designed into Adam redeemability. Angels don't have redeemability. But man was created with redeemability. The ability to be forgiven and to be given a recreation. Hallelujah. At any rate, I'm digressing. Let me move, continue to move forward. Truth is 
not a perspective. It's not how you see a thing. Truth is a person. You have to deal with him. He's got two eyes. He's got a mouth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you can get him to change his mind, then maybe you can change truth. But nobody yet, <coughs> excuse me, nobody yet has found fault in Jesus and been able to instruct him, been able to get him to find a better way or a different way. In anything, can you say amen? amen. Now, because of the progressive nature of time and history, people tend to think of truth also in the same way as an incomplete thing that is in a state of developing because everything in the natural world around us is yet evolving, yet developing. Um, uh, people that want to see um, uh, absolutes see them. They exist. But because days pass by, weeks pass by, you'll never go back to get them again, and yet we know that a week is coming and it, it will arrive, we tend to look at truth the same way, that it is an unfolding and a developing thing. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is that because we allow circumstances around us to shape what we believe the truth to be, we become subject to those circumstances rather than to truth. And so... Reality is more than our snapshot of circumstances. Reality is God's big picture of truth. We just see little snapshots and we think the truth is evolving. But the truth has no evolution in it. It is complete and perfect and is not in need of improving or changing. So it's high time that we as the people of God stop adapting truth to the shifting nuances of culture and settle on the fact that reality hangs on the eternal nail of the Word of God. Reality is, I am, God said, and God is reality and the author of it. And what we see through our limited uh, snapshot of time and history unfolding gives us a sense of motion because of our place in that continuum. But the reality is that God has never lost the reins of time and knows exactly where all of this is going to end up, praise the Lord. What we're talking about is authority, divine authority. God is all authoritative because He is truth. Wherever you find truth, you'll find true authority. Wherever you find error, wherever you find lies, you will find abuse of authority, fake authority, false authority. Now, <clears throat> back to the story of Jesus and the disciples on the Lake of Galilee. Jesus says to them, let's cross over to the other side. When when he said that, truth had spoken. What did truth say? Let's cross over to the other side. I've never read anywhere, even anything that seems to come close to Jesus entering a village or a town and going, 
You know, I think I missed it. I think we were supposed to be in Jericho. Uh, you know what? Let's, let's not do this. I need to get back on track. I'm off track. We never see him off track. He's, wherever he is, is the head of the table. Wherever he is, it's, it's where the I am is. Can you say amen? amen? So they're in the middle of doing what truth said, and they're going across to the other side. Now, that's the truth. You know, we love to nuance a little bit and, and philosophize about our existence, our life, about our value. And uh, I could see the disciples entering into a discussion in the boat saying, why are we going to the other side? Is it necessary to go to the other side? But the fact is, is that all those conversations are free. You can have them if you want, but they're really immaterial. And they really matter nothing at all. Truth said, we're going to the other side. Get in the boat, let's go. And so partway across this sea, the Bible says, and a great windstorm arose. Have you ever wondered why you commit yourself to something God speaks to you and immediately trouble comes out from somewhere? <clears throat> You say to yourself, I'm going to put the kingdom of God first. I'm going to make some changes in my life. And then you have the worst week from hell. Kids go crazy. Job situation becomes unstable. Finances start falling apart. And it's like, you know, I don't know if I can really do this. Besides, I got some pains here. Got an itch under here. And a face broke out. So a great storm arose, and the waves were beating against the boat, <clears throat> saying, let us in. And indeed, the waves were starting to climb into the boat. And the storm also began to talk. There wasn't just truth talking. Truth said, let's go over to the other side. The storm said, wait a minute. And the storm started to talk to the disciples until they believed that they were going to the bottom instead of to the other side. And, um, but, but their fear, their fear that they had, that we're sinking, we've come out here to die. We haven't come to go to the other side. We've come out here to, for it to end. No matter how convincing the circumstances, no matter how convincing their situation, their fear was not the truth. Now, that, there's a lesson, right? Their fear, though supported by everything they heard, felt, thought, reason, you can think of all sorts of uh, accompanying confirmations, but what they feared was not the truth. When they woke up Jesus in the bow of the boat, they woke up the truth. And guess what? The truth hadn't changed its mind. The truth didn't rub his eyes and get up and go, darn, I didn't see that coming. Do you understand? Now, that's the way the movie version would go. But, um, but that's not what happened because when truth woke up, it didn't have a changed mind. And the circumstances could not budge Jesus from what he had already spoken. Now, circumstances budge you and I from what we speak all the time. We say one thing and we get pushed right off of that declaration. 
Now, it's a good idea to not say something in the first place that you shouldn't be pushed off of down the road. So we do want to be careful what we say. But Jesus was always careful. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Hallelujah. That's why we can trust him. You know, I just take a little side trip and just mention briefly, there are many ways to talk about Jesus as the miracle of the Messiah, the Son of God, God tabernacling in flesh, the Word made flesh. Well, one of the ways that proves the deity of Christ is in the field of literature. He is a literary miracle where all the authors throughout history, the great philosophers, all gathered together and given the assignment to develop the perfect character and write a story about him. They could not develop Jesus of Nazareth. You know, people say, well, the Bible was written by people. Lots of people had their hands in there. And, you know, there's so many ways this could have gone sideways. So how can you say that the Bible really is the authoritative word of God? Well, it is quite a miracle that that happened. But I will say this, if you want to take just the Gospels by themselves, it's quite impossible that a man or a collection of men and women or great minds could have written the character in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because he is airtight, flawless. He is absolutely perfect. You could not come up with a better sequence than render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You might come up with two or three clever lines. You might come up with a couple of situations. But from beginning to end, to lay the whole drama out, the entire background, everything, and bring every prophetic utterance from the Old Testament together, line them all up, come up with Jesus, who is the perfect uh, expression of God. I'm sorry, it is a literary miracle. So at any rate, the truth had not changed his mind. And he had said, let us go across to the other side. Now all around him, Mind you, they wake him up, he stands up in the boat. All around him, the wind and the waves are screaming violently in a devilish taunt, saying, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? And think about it. When the wind and the waves of circumstance rise up against you and push at you, whether they touch you in the area of your health or your finance or your relationships or your internal emotions, your thought process, whatever they are, it, that, that attack, that trial always comes down to one thing. Who is in charge here? It's always a struggle over the issue of authority. It's always a struggle over the fact that somebody has to be the shot caller. Somebody has to be in charge. And it's either going to be a legitimate authority or it's going to be an illegitimate authority. Now, apparently, the taunting winds and waves had already blown into the disciples' heads and flooded their hearts because their response to the storm's probe was, uh, <clears throat> well, apparently you are in charge. They spoke to the wind. The disciples acquiesced. They said, yep, the wind's in charge. We're fishermen. We're out here all the time. We've seen this before. We know what's going to happen. The waves are in charge. You are in charge, circumstances. We bow to you. We acknowledge you. We don't like you, but we acknowledge you. You are in charge. And so the waves had gotten into their head. 
The wind had gotten into their mind. Soaked, drenched their hearts. But then, unswayed from the Father's direction to cross over to the other side of the lake, Jesus got up and took charge over the hindrance to his orders. And rebuking the wind and commanding the waves, they calmed down. And the disciples are stunned. You see, this story was not about, oh, Jesus is a magician, and oh, look at the, what Jesus can do in the miracles. We tend to push all these things over into the area of magic and supernatural. And we sometimes forget that none of these things happened because God wanted to flex his muscles, show off, impress us. We were already impressed. But they were meant because God wanted to impart something to you. Not impress you, but impart something to you. And then Jesus, after everything calms down, he talks to his disciples about why they let circumstances lie to them and lie them, lie to them and talk them out of the truth and back them down from taking charge. In effect, that's what Jesus was saying to them. Are you still in unbelief? Why are you in fear? Why are you waking me up and basically insinuating, I don't care? You know, I will say this, authority sleeps easy. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? He's sleeping, and the boat is sinking, and he's not worried. He's not worried because God doesn't know you're scared out of your mind. He's not not worried because he doesn't care. He's not not worried because he knows he could pop up and walk on water if he needs to. Too bad about you. He's not worried because he is in charge. Amen. Let me say it again. He's not worried because he's in charge. Amen. And then he turns to the disciples. And if they weren't afraid of the wind, now they're really afraid after Jesus talks to them and basically says, why didn't you take charge? That's what Jesus said. Why are you so fearful and why are you still in unbelief? Insinuating, I could have kept sleeping. You could have taken charge. Let me share with you just a, a way to think about circumstances and the, and the truth in your life. You know, circumstances will change what people believe about the truth. Happens all the time. It happens to you and I. Hopefully in little ways, but sometimes in big ways. Circumstances will change what people believe about the truth. They'll be absolutely certain that God has shown them something in his word. The Bible confirms it. I know this is true. I've had a taste of it in my life. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. But then a month later, a week later, a year later, years later, circumstances begin to erode, begin to bring their pressure to bear, and those beliefs begin to crumble. They begin to change. And what you began believing has now somehow been converted, subverted, diverted, and it's now something less than the truth that you had in the big beginning. And many of us carry a certain amount of pain and sorrow in our heart who have walked with the Lord for a number of years over the areas of our life 
that we have allowed what we believe to be subverted by circumstances. Circumstances will change what people believe about the truth, but the truth never changes because of circumstances. Now, let me say that to you. And that's going to be a little hard because you don't see circumstances coming, but the truth knew circumstances before they existed. And the truth is never changed by circumstances. Remember now what we said before. You have not heard the truth concerning a matter until you've heard about it from Jesus. I'm going to share with you a couple things that are going to make you think I'm not intending to liberty to be provocative, but uh, um, I believe these things, and if you think about them, I'll bet you can come to the same conclusion. The first thing I want to say to you, a couple of statements, is people are powerful in this world. People, human beings on this planet, as long as they're alive for the span of their lifetime, people are potentially incredibly powerful. Powerful beings. But the devil, contrary to folklore, contrary to belief, contrary to opinion, the devil is not powerful. He is not very powerful. We are powerful, but the devil is not powerful. What he is, is he's manipulative. And he's very, very good at it. Really good at reading people. Think of... Um, Think of horses. They're much more powerful than we are. Has anyone here ever been bit or kicked by a horse? Okay. Glad you survived it. Some people don't. Um, naked man. Well, we'll put some clothes on him. Clothed man. But man without any tools in his hand. Take a man. Take a horse. Horse outruns, outworks everything. More powerful, physically powerful than a man. Yet look at the lot of horses. They are the most manipulated creatures on the face of the earth. We get them to come. We get them to go. We climb on them. We make them do things. I mean, you think about it. Horse has no life. They want to be running up and down the canyons and having fun and just kicking up their heels. But no, their whole life from beginning to end, we strap stuff to them. They drag stuff around. We, 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 maybe not as much nowadays, but years ago we used to drag them onto our battlefields and we'd lose as many horses as we did people. Horses are easily manipulated, although they're much more powerful than we are. And the devil is not very powerful, but he is an amazing manipulator. And he manipulates the heck out of people. And um, I'll tell you something, the devil is a master at it. He's a master at getting you and I to use our power against the truth and to put him in charge in our life. You know, my wife said something to me lately, and I'll tell you what, it just rocked my world. She was talking to me about my life as a leader, and uh, she said, you know, I'll tell you something about your leadership. She said, you've got great leadership um, gifting in your life. But your big problem is you're too easily led. And I'll tell you what, you gotta love a woman that'll tell you things that'll rock your world. I don't know if you guys are threatened by wives that tell you, I love my wife for things like that. 
That just put me back in my seat and I thought to myself, every time I have fallen short, failed in a mission, not reached my goal, was because I let myself be led by something other than what God put in front of me. I'm too eager to please other people and to let other influences lead me. And you can't be a greater effective leader if you're always open to being led. And I'm not talking about, I, I don't have the time to develop this, but I think you get what I'm saying. So the idea is that people are powerful, but they are very easily manipulated. And um, the devil knows that he's finished if people start taking charge. If God succeeds at redeeming people, entering their life, making them new creations, and then they start letting God take charge through them, meaning that they use their stewardship and take charge, the enemy's territory shrinks exponentially. You know, the weight of circumstances like those waves crashing against the boat and the wind deteriorating. You, you see these great canyons that over time were carved out, hard rock carved out by the activity of wind and rain and, and water. And like, that, like the wind and the rain, those circumstances over time bend the mind till it's stooped over in a permanent palsy of doubt. And there are many believers who have read the Bible dozens of times. They have good theological grip on what to believe. They lead a conscientious life. They are, for the most part, faithful to the Lord. They're engaged in following the Lord and shining for Jesus and and uh, walking as a Christian, as a witness, as a testimony in this world. There are tons of people like that who don't take charge. All those other things are true, but for the most part, they oftentimes don't take charge. There are many believers today that believe that God can do anything, believe that it is His will to bless and to help, that uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But over time, circumstances, prayers that haven't been answered, things they've gone to God about. The Bible says uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And over a period of time, people have, have had experiences that weigh on their mind and stoop and bow, bow them over so that they're in a permanent bend of doubt. That every time they enter a prayer meeting or any time they go before the Lord to ask God for something or to seek the Lord about that thing, their mind is already in, I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't believe it's really going to happen. Why do I not believe it? Is it because I don't believe it's true? No, because I myself am not ready to take charge. I don't have confidence that this is really going to work. I, I don't want to say I don't believe it, but I, I just don't believe it's going to happen in my life or in my set of circumstances. We can't explain it. It is a spiritual paradox. But what I'm telling you is that the, the devil does not care 
if he's got 10 or 100,000 believers that believe the truth, he can manage them, all of them. But what he's terrified of is one believer who takes Jesus seriously, takes Jesus seriously, and takes charge. Those men and women are a real detriment to the kingdom of darkness. Can you say amen? He is worried that someone's going to stand up to the storm. He's worried someone's going to wake up in the boat and rebuke the wind and rebuke the storm and take charge. And I'm not talking about jumping up and parroting a bunch of religious formulas. That's not taking charge. That's believing in magic. The seven sons of Sceva tried that. And the devil rose up and beat those boys bloody and tore all their clothes off of them. What did they not have? They didn't have charge. They weren't in the truth. They weren't walking in the truth. You know, you do need to make sure you're in the right boat. You know, Jesus did not jump in the disciples' boat as they were on their way to vacation to Fantasy Island. Uh, they got into his boat as he was going across in his mission to the other side. You know, this jumped out at me. They said, when they woke him up, teacher. Everyone say teacher. They said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Notice that at that point, they still related to him as a teacher, which means they were students collecting information. They weren't ready to receive an impartation from him. They were learning. You can't take charge without receiving an impartation from God. You can't take charge with just information. Formulas don't work. You need a life-altering, transforming, impartation, revelation in your life if you're going to stand up and take charge when the storms of life come and rise up against your boat and say, who's in charge here? It's like shooting BBs at the wind. If all you have is just your belief in the Bible, can you say amen? amen? Look, when you're sailing with Jesus through life, that's really what a Christian is. It's not somebody that believes in Jesus. It's someone who sails with Jesus. It's someone who gets into the boat with Jesus. Why did they get into that boat? Here, drop me off at the mall? Uh, no. He was on a mission and they were with him. They were with him wherever he goes, whatever he's going to do. We're not really sure what the itinerary is, but we're up for the itinerary. That's what a disciple is. I've given my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm up for the itinerary. He says, get in the boat, I'm in the boat. Amen. Somebody say, when's the last time you got in a boat? When's the last time you heard Jesus say, get in the boat, we're going to the other side, and you got in the boat? When's the last time the Lord gave you a vision, spoke to your heart, commanded you, you were in, on your face seeking God, and the Lord said, do this. Did you just brush it aside? Did immediately circumstances, little storms, little gusts of wind jump up and say, I can't do that because Tuesday I've got the so-and-so going on. How often have you and I been talked out of getting into the boat that Jesus is calling us into? This doesn't even begin to work until you get into the boat. 
It doesn't even begin to work until you go where God's telling you to go. Do what he's told you to do. I know I'm speaking in metaphoric terms here. I hope you understand that. But, but you get the idea. So when you're sailing with Jesus through life, when you're navigating in obedience to his command, go to the other side, then storms will arise and talk to you. And um, I'm sure you have found that out by now. Storms will arise. Make no mistake, that storm was there for a reason. That storm was talking. That storm arose not because there was bad weather or a weather pattern or a cold front had come in. All that could have been true, but it doesn't matter. And the moment they were crossing that lake, that storm was there for a reason. And that flat tire hit your car for a reason right when it did. That uh, unexpected notice in the mail came for a reason. Those things that rise up against you come for a reason. When you get in the boat with Jesus, you are living a targeted life and the storms are going to arise and they're going to try to talk you out of your destination. It's at that very moment when the storm is screaming at you and challenging you. It's at that moment when Satan is probing to see who's in charge in this boat. Who's in charge in this boat? So let me conclude this. When the storm arises to challenge God's will, truth is always searching for someone to put in charge. Let me say that again. Every time a storm arises to challenge the will of God, truth goes on a search to find someone to put in charge. Not someone who's like everyone else that knows what ought to be done or knows the truth but somebody who will take charge. And so when the circumstances attack God's stated will in your life, prompting the question over your life, who's in charge here? May you be found rising up in the boat and boldly declaring, I am, and rebuking the storm. That is our decision this morning. Some of you may have come in this morning and left a storm at your house that has risen up. It could be that a bad weather system has settled in over your household for weeks now or for some time. And it is screaming who is in charge and you're trying to deal with it quoting the Bible to yourself. And there's nothing wrong with praying but going to God saying, Lord, please help. And he will, but ultimately, whatever help God sends into your life is going to eventually end up in you having to stand up and take charge. He will counsel you. He will bless you. He will encourage you. But it's not to keep you sitting down. It's to get you to your feet and to get you to face the storm and to say, I, God has put me in charge. And I command you, get out of my business. Get out of my business. I'm going to the other side. I'm going to Capernaum. I'm not changing my destination. I'm not changing my itinerary. Get your hands off of my life. Take charge. 
That is what God is looking for in this hour. It's what he has always been looking for. It's why Jesus did all of these things is to restore you into people who will take charge. And one day he will return physically, return from heaven. And his feet will touch before the eastern gate. He will set up his kingdom while all the kingdoms of this world and all the nations and empires will be handed to him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to